Welcome to episode 24. Here's your flash news for the week. Putin and the Kremlin's number one opposition and political prisoner, Alexei Navalny, mysteriously died in an Arctic prison. After this announcement, nearly 400 people were arrested for protesting. Prison officials claimed Saturday Navalny died of sudden death syndrome or any cause for cardiac arrest. It's almost certain that this was poisoning. The man was only 47 years old and had already been almost poisoned to death just four years ago. It's no coincidence that Russia's presidential election is a month away, and this is the Vladimir Putin you didn't get to see last week when we talked about his interview with Tucker Carlson. That interview was mainly concerning the foreign affairs of Russia, but this shows the dark underbelly of their internal political affairs where they poison and imprison the opposition leader. Speaking of Russia, uh, plans were leaked revealing uh, Russian plans to place a nuclear weapon in space. And no, we're not talking about something like the Death Star, where they can, you know, shoot us with lasers from outer space. This is a massive weapon designed to destroy our satellites. Now we're we're only talking about plans. This isn't happening right now. Like they're not launching a satellite into space right now. But it's certainly worth mentioning. Now we we also the U.S. has weapons just like this already in space, and so does China. This is why President Trump created a, a new branch of the U.S. military, otherwise known as Space Force, regardless of the stupid Netflix show making fun of it. An assault weapon uh, like this could potentially knock out communications and electricity. Definitely a threat to security, national security, and I'm sure that the NATO countries will respond to this news. In the Middle East conflict... Egypt is proving the Biden administration wrong and the Trump administration right as they continue building a fortified wall on their border with the Gaza Strip. This is to keep Gazans, or Palestinians, out of their country as Israeli forces advance in that direction toward the city of Rafah. This wall is to keep Palestinians from the Sinai Peninsula and to prevent a refugee crisis in their country. And finally, Elon Musk has moved two of his companies, SpaceX and Neuralink, from Delaware to Texas. Another company or companies to to move from a blue state to a red state because of economics and regulations, etc. Elon tweeted the following, inviting all businesses to move out of Joe Biden's home state. SpaceX has moved its state of incorporation from Delaware to Texas. If your company is still incorporated in Delaware... I recommend moving to another state as soon as possible. Well, there's your Flash News of the Week. I'm Blake Watson, and this is We The Free. best ways you can help our show other than by sharing today's content is by picking up some We The Free merch at wethefreeshow.com. You can be the salt and light you are meant to be by wearing the salt and light shirt or by sipping your coffee from the salt and light mug, or you can sport the God Bless America shirt and of course the classic We The Free crest tee. We've even got stickers and a Smells Like Freedom candle. That's right. 
So check out our new merch at wethefreeshow.com. It's been a week and a half since the Super Bowl, which we were going to talk about last week in our first show after Super Bowl Sunday. But there was something much more pressing for us to talk about last week, which was Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir Putin. We practically spent the entire episode talking about the content, the substance of that interview. It quickly became our second most watched episode, and there were a couple videos associated with it that were our most viral videos to date. So clearly it was an important topic. I really recommend you go watch my interpretation of the interview. It's less than an hour long, which is half the time of the actual interview. So now we'll finally get to some of the hot takes we have on the biggest television event of the year, and maybe of all time, Super Bowl 58. We were, of course, rooting for the San Francisco 49ers in the big game uh, for the reasons that we've talked about over the last month or so, but the Kansas City Chiefs came out on top, ultimately winning 25-22. to Honestly, the outcome wasn't much of a surprise to anyone, regardless of our hopes. In fact, uh, there weren't many surprises. They sang the racist, separatist national anthem for all the blacks without patriotism or any concept of real history. They cut to several shots of Taylor Swift, a person who has nothing to do with the game, but the league and the networks love that attention. Um, The halftime show was about as good as you would expect, complete with bizarre wardrobe, stripper poles, risque dancing, partial nudity, and an underwhelming performance. And Reba McIntyre, as always, slayed. But there were a few notable things worth mentioning, other than the so-called Black National Anthem. Uh, The broadcast was shockingly apolitical. Um, Even most of the commercials, which we'll talk about in just a minute, um, one of the viral moments from the game, and you actually had to be there to see this, but Taylor Swift's token black friend, who goes by the name Ice Spice, was in the side of a Jumbotron shot of Taylor chugging her drink in front of the arena. I know, such a, ro- such a role model. But here's the clip that a fan posted from the game. In case you're listening to the audio podcast, Ice Spice was seen putting up the devil horns hand gesture, or what's called the sign of the horns. And honestly, at first glance, I thought this was just, you know, like the heavy rock gesture, like, you know, rock out. But then she follows that gesture by showing off her upside down cross necklace, which is a satanic symbol and a mockery of the crucifixion. Now, this next detail took a little bit of digging, but she's wearing and is a brand ambassador for Balenciaga, who found themselves in some hot water online for their exploitation and sexualization of minors because they created a slew of ads depicting children wearing their clothing, but the sets were complete with hidden imagery. There was one with sexual bondage gear and leather straps, one littered with with court papers, Uh, from a a case about uh, child pornography, a real case. Uh, There was one where they intentionally misspelled the company name Ball Enciaga or Bale Enciaga with two A's instead of just one. Um, And though the company is is named after its Spanish founder, 
When you translate B-A-A-L, Baal Enciaga, from Latin to English, it translates to Baal the king. And in case you don't know who Baal is, just take a look at your Old Testament. He was a, a false god worshipped as kind of like the god of the sun, god of storms, and, and most of all, fertility. Worshipping this false god involved sensuality and prostitution and at times, child sacrifice. In fact, later on when Jesus called Satan Beelzebul, it was a transliteration of the name Baal. Furthermore, the, the Apostle Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians that pagan worshipers are actually worshiping demons who masquerade as gods. In other words, all of it is, every bit of this is connected. The demonic hand gestures, the upside down cross, the demonic clothing line, and she was promoting Satan in front of the whole stadium as Taylor Swift was chugging her liquor. Just more evidence of the satanic music industry, which we did a whole episode on, and I hope you'll check that out. But another viral moment was Travis Kelsey's roid rage moment of pushing the head coach, Andy Reid, and screaming and cursing in his face on the sideline. Everyone tried to play this off. Even the coach played it off. The quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, said it was Travis just being passionate about the team and winning the game. Now, I've got a couple things to say about this. First of all, I played football for 10 years uh, when I was in high school. If, if I had acted this way toward my head coach, I would have been out. And I mean either knocked out or out, out on the bench for the rest of the game. Why? Because it's absolute disrespect to authority. Which leads me to the second thing and, and the Christian perspective on all this. We should never, ever speak to anyone this way. But especially those who are superior to us. Paul expressed this in Ephesians 6 when he talked about serving our masters with fear and trembling. Why? Because we're not just serving this immediate superior, this immediate master, but ultimately we're serving the Lord. So Travis clearly set a terrible example among countless other poor examples. And shockingly, there was one person to call him out on this, his own brother, retired Eagles offensive lineman and embodiment of true masculinity, Jason Kelsey. The broadcast showed you having a heated exchange with Coach Reed. <laughs> so heated. Yeah, where it looks like uh, you caught Big Red off guard a little bit. As he said, I gave him, I got, I got him with a cheap shot. People are all over this, and I, I mean, I get it. I can't. Yeah, you, I, you went, you went, you crossed the line. I think we can I, both I, agree I, on I that. I can't, I can't, I can't get that fired up to the point where I'm bumping coach and it's getting him off balance and stuff. When he, when he stumbled, I was just like, oh, shit in my head. Or I, even, like, I mean, even, it. I mean, let's be honest, the, the yelling in his face too is over the top. I think there's better ways to handle this retrospectively. Yeah. I, uh, I know. Emotions ramped up. Sometimes those emotions get away from me, man. And I've, uh, that's been the battle of my, my career. One of the outflowings of the Holy Spirit is self-control. I know that's not what Jason Kelsey is saying, but he is talking to his brother about controlling himself. But you, you can't have respect for authority without that self-control, which in this case, Travis didn't control his emotions, which is admittedly a, a problem for him. And he disrespected his coach for the whole nation to see, you know, 
124 million people. And I just want to know from all of the, the Swifties, though, is this a problem for you all? Like, are you worried about this? Is this future album material? Just let me know in the comments. And finally, as, as mentioned before, the commercials were surprisingly apolitical. They, they weren't amazing. I think there were somewhere around 60 different ads during the game. Uh, some of my favorites were the, the Kawasaki commercial, which was uber masculine and patriotic. Dudes driving around in a side-by-side, -side, a, a bald eagle, chainsaws, a grizzly bear, stone, stone cold Steve Austin. Oh, and, and everybody has mullets. Um, there was a, a State Farm commercial advertising a fake movie called Agent State Farm starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, the whole shtick was that Arnold was mispronouncing the slogan like a good neighbor instead of neighbor. And like he, <laughs> this woman's in labor. That was, that was the funniest ad of all. Uh, the Dunkings were funny uh, for Dun Dunkin' Donuts. The, the best serious ad was the one from the Foundation to Combat Anti-Semitism. And then that brings us to the most controversial commercial from He Gets Us, an ad called Foot Washing. CNN reported that He Gets Us, a campaign to promote Jesus and Christianity, is running two ads during the game as part of a staggering $100 million media investment. The question is, if you were going to spend $100 million on advertisements for, for Jesus, what would you say? Well, He Gets Us has been advertising and running marketing campaigns for about two years now. They've put out a plethora of ads on various platforms all over the country, uh, mainly around sporting events, but just about everybody has seen something of theirs. But l let's take a look at their main ad during this year's Super Bowl viewing uh, which was seen by 123 million people live. Watch this. Don't ask me what you know is true. Don't have to tell you. Jesus didn't teach hate, he washed feet, says he gets us to the tune of $7 million. Now, what you've seen are 12 still images. Yes, they are real images. They're not real situations, and, and no, it's, it's not AI-generated. But let's, let's take a closer look at all of these. In the first frame, you see a, a white, conservative-looking family celebrating Christmas at dinner, and you see the son, who I would describe as wayward and the opposite of conservative-looking, at least. He's washing his father's feet. In the second frame, you see a police officer washing the feet of a black man 
in an alleyway. The officer seems to be Hispanic. The third frame shows two high school girls. One looks like your stereotypical popular girl, like a cheerleader. The other, your modern stereotypical gothic chick. Um, in this scenario, the popular white girl is washing the feet of the gothic or emo or edgy kind of girl. In the next scene, we're taken to the desert where we see an older white man who seems to be like a cowboy washing the feet of a Native American. You can also see in the background that it seems they've gone camping together with the lanterns, the campfire, and the single truck in the background. Um, next, we see a middle-aged white woman washing the feet of a teenage girl in front of an, an abortion clinic. There's a group of protesters in the background, but they're not protesting. This tells me the foot washer is probably part of this group and they've stopped because of what she's doing. If you look really closely, you can see the group has signs that say things like save the unborn and choice or child. It's not clear whether or not this teenage girl had an abortion, but given the context, I'd say that's what she's done or she's there to do. There's also a, a motel clearly depicted in the background. I think that this was an intentional choice to show what was and what would be the alternative to a clinic, abortions in a motel. This actually calls back to a time before the legalization of abortion when women would seek these backroom kind of dangerous attempts at murdering their children. So the motel's juxtaposition with the clinic is, at least to me, an argument against pro-lifers. And this is coming from a supposedly Christian organization. Halfway through the commercial, we have this frame showing the daughter, it seems, of an alcoholic mother, washing her mother's feet amidst a kitchen littered with empty bottles and trash. In frame seven, a middle-aged white man who works as an oil driller takes a break to wash the feet of a climate activist. She appears to be an Asian woman dressed in 60s sort of hippie-era clothing. She's also discarded a sign which reads, Clean Air Now. In the eighth scene, a suburban white woman is washing the feet of an illegal migrant who's holding her infant. And it's quite clear they're in front of one of Governor Abbott's buses because there's a load of migrants coming off and they're being dropped off in Chicago, as you can see on the front of the bus. Next, we see a white woman washing the feet of her Islamic neighbor in the front yard. The neighbor is wearing a hijab. Their husbands are standing behind them watching, but the white husband looks particularly uncomfortable. The next scene shows several people yelling at each other. The setting isn't quite discernible, but you can clearly see the two groups are protesting against each other for something. They represent opposing views or positions. And then you look at their signs. One sign says, shut him up, while another says, let him speak. You see another sign, which reads, no censorship, while another sign says, silence, hate. There's a partial sign where you can read the word speech, and another partial sign which seems to say, stop fascism. So the signs made it clear to me that one side is like the MAGA crowd and the other side are the anti-Trumpers. And then in the middle of them all, you have a MAGA lady washing the feet of a Trump hater. 
In the 11th scene, this is the most unique scene in the entire piece. Two elderly gentlemen, one white, one black, sit on the front porch of an old southern diner. Um, They're not washing each other's feet. Each person has a foot in the tub, and and the black gentleman has kind of an assuring hand on what is clearly his, his friend's arm, his white friend's arm. Also worth noting here is that the pitcher of water is sitting on the black man's side. And finally, the last scene shows a priest, who I think is a Lutheran priest, washing the feet of either a a very flamboyant gay man or a trans person. And the video ends by making the, the giant proclamation that Jesus did not teach hate, but instead he washed feet. And as usual, every one of their ads ends by saying, he gets us, all of us. There's, there's a lot of speculation that we can do, but there are many things that people have been misreporting about the ad. For example, several have said that the ad only showed the marginalized or the victimized having their feet washed, but there was never a depiction of the inverse. Well, that's not true, because you can see those two elderly gentlemen and it's as if they've washed each other's feet. You have the daughter and the alcoholic mother. You have the political factions arguing with each other. And there's a subtle detail in every frame that if you don't look closely, you'll miss it. In every single frame, both people have their shoes off. Not just the one having their feet washed. Now before I tell you my interpretation of this, Let's take a look at what the He Gets Us website says about the campaign. They ask the question, what is foot washing and what does it symbolize? Well, that's a great question. Let's see how they answer it. With an upcoming election year that will be filled with division and derision, we decided to focus on one of the most important directives given by Jesus, love your neighbor. As we explored creative ideas, we recalled the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet and realized this was the perfect example of how we should treat one another, even those people with whom we don't see eye to eye. And this is the point where we have to stop and correct some theological fallacies made by the supposed Christian organization. There are two biblical references they've made. Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and secondly, love your neighbor. Let's look at the latter first. This is pulled from Matthew and Mark's gospel, but context is everything. Let's look at Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So stop right there a second. Notice They're trying to trick Jesus. When they refer to the law, they're talking about the Mosaic law, given 3,000 years before that. Um, There were hundreds of laws, over 600, but the foremost laws were those of the Ten Commandments. In Jesus' day, there was a lot of debate about which laws were the most binding, which laws were the, the lightest, which ones were the heaviest. If Jesus answers the question as they asked it. He'll ruin some of his credibility with some and possibly incriminate himself in the eyes of the Pharisees. 
So this is how Jesus responded. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 36, and then from Leviticus 19, 18. Then he says everything hinges on these two laws. Why does he say this? Well, if you look back at the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20, there are four vertical commandments. Those are the first ones, which have to do specifically with our relationship to God. And then the final six commandments have to do with our relationships to others, the horizontal ones. God ordered it this way on purpose to say essentially what Jesus said, you must love me first and foremost before you can love others the way that you should. A perfect answer from Jesus, but what else would you expect from the word become flesh? The second command and the attempted theme of this ad is loving your neighbor. But oddly, they they left out the rest of that command to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is not an admonition to self-love or to be narcissistic, but the, the essence of the golden rule to treat others in the way you wish to be treated. Love them the way you wish to be loved or the way that you should be loved. However, all of this comes after loving God first and foremost. Listen, I can't love my wife properly if I'm not first loving God above all. I cannot love my children without an intense love for my Savior. I can't love those around me, my neighbors, if I'm not loving Jesus. It's in that order. Now, we're going to return to the subject of love, but first let's look at the, the other reference that they've made, that of Jesus washing feet. This comes from John chapter 13. Again, context is so critical. It's, it's always critical. You can't simply pull a verse from Scripture or a part of a verse and base your entire doctrine on a verse alone. What is the context? What else does the Bible say on this subject? Who is the audience? What is the setting? Who are the characters? All of this stuff matters. This is the the night before Jesus' death. The night before he will sacrifice himself, shed his blood, be crucified, and die for us. They're celebrating Passover, and, and this happens before they share this meal together. John tells us, Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. So Jesus says, This isn't just about me cleaning your feet. It means something more which you'll understand later. And Peter is practically offended that the Lord is washing his feet, so he says, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Remember that there is some sort of symbolism Jesus wishes to convey to his disciples. This is 
embedded in his statement. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Here's what this means. Unless I cleanse you or wash away your filth, your sins, you can have no part with me. It's all spiritually symbolic of his atoning sacrifice, which he's about to make the very next day with the shedding of his blood. All of this harkens back to the sacrificial system and the shedding of pure blood to atone for the sins of man or the sins of a whole nation. In other words, the foot washing is not only an incredible display of humility, it's also a symbolic, it's, it's symbolic of the necessity of spiritual cleansing. Feet were considered the absolute filthiest part of an individual usually caked and covered in mud and dirt and sand and who knows what else. And before our, our, our baptism into Christ, we're nothing but a heap of filthiness and dirtiness until He washes us clean. So when He had washed their feet and taken His garments and reclined at the table again, He said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Who is one another? Who's in the room? The disciples, the followers of Jesus. In modern terminology, we would call these people Christians. In fact, Jesus is only ever recorded doing this with them and never anyone else. But let's not get too caught up on the point of the actual washing of the feet. The second point, after the spiritual symbolism, was that of loving humility, which we'll come back to later. It it is this aspect of spiritual cleansing that he gets us entirely leaves out. They said, during his last meal with his closest followers, the twelve disciples, Jesus retrieved a bowl, filled it with water, and began washing their feet with a rag. But this wasn't a traditional cleaning after a road trip. Jesus was using foot washing to emphasize a larger point, a symbol for all his followers to see how they should treat one another. Foot washing requires one to lower themselves, even kneel before another person. While the posture seems subservient at first, it truly represents an act of kindness and generosity that makes the actions of the foot washer noble. That was always the way of Jesus, put others first and himself last. He had previously taught, The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We began to imagine a world where ideological others were willing to set their differences aside and wash one another's feet. How would that look? How would our contentious world change if we washed one another's feet, not literally, but figuratively? Now watch this next part. This is important. He gets us said, Figurative foot washing can be as simple as giving a compliment to a co-worker or paying paying for a stranger's lunch. It can also be as difficult as not responding to someone who's criticizing you or reaching out to an estranged family member. Acts of kindness done out of humility and respect for another person can be considered the equivalent of foot washing. 
Our hope is that our latest commercials will stimulate both societal discussion and individual self-reflection about who is my neighbor and how each of us can love our neighbor even as we have differences and serve one another with more kindness and respect. Well, congratulations. You have succeeded in stimulating societal discussion, but not so much individual self-reflection, as I'll show you later. So allow me to very simply answer this question, which practically every, everyone knows the, the answer to, Christian and non-Christian alike, who is my neighbor? Well, it's every single person that you come into contact with. It's everyone. It's people in your community, it's people you go to school with, that you work with, that you encounter in public life, and to utilize the, the scripture within its context, how are we to love our neighbor? And, and this is, with this we, we have what is perhaps, I think, one of the most important questions of our time. How do we love our neighbor? This is, without a doubt, the most misunderstood and poorly taught doctrines in the world, but especially in advanced societies today. What is love, really? What is hate, really? This is the central problem with the church, with parents and families, with teachers and preachers, with husbands and wives and Christians and their neighbors. It's abundantly clear that liberals and progressives have defined love to mean niceness and affirmation and acceptance and tolerance and blind support, etc. But that extends even into Christendom. In fact, I'll say this. Husbands and wives are failing to love as Jesus commands. Parents are failing to love as the Bible commands. Pastors are failing to love as Jesus commands. And Christians are either failing to love as Jesus commands, or they're being told that what they know to be love is, in actuality, hatefulness. To understand how God in the Bible actually defines genuine love, you have to examine the fullness of Scripture instead of merely ripping one verse from the whole Bible. Let's begin with a remarkable story of conversion. Jesus is making his way through Samaria, which was a place Jews despised. They hated Samaritans because they viewed them as unrighteous and dirty, a bunch of sinners, if you will. The disciples head into town to get supplies, and Jesus rests at a well where the Samaritans would fetch their water. A Samaritan woman comes to the well alone, which tells us a lot about her because women always did this in groups. So for whatever reason, she doesn't have any friends. Now watch this. Jesus begins to witness to her about himself. And this is where he offers her living water, which is symbolic of his salvation. Don't forget about the, the cleansing that we talked about earlier. He tells her that if she drinks this water, she'll never thirst again. Now, he says all of this, all of this stuff before he calls out her sin. Yes, he reveals to her that he knows she's had five husbands and she's currently living with a man who isn't her husband. In other words, she is, by God's standards, an adulteress and a fornicator, a sexual deviant, in other words. But Jesus began by 
offering himself to her. He is the living water. And he essentially says, stop trying to satisfy yourself with men. This is a sin which will never quench your thirst and will always leave you wanting more. Instead, drink my living water, accept me into your life, give yourself to me and you will be eternally satisfied. And she left that well a transformed woman, a a new creation, if you will. In fact, she ran into town to tell everyone about what she had just experienced. This is a story of Christ's love, which you'll understand more of in a moment. But it's also a story of transformation, which is a critical outcome of genuine salvation. In other words, a Christian is someone who is deeply changed by Christ. And you can think back to that symbolic washing and spiritual cleansing that we saw on the foot washing. The theological term for this is repentance. Repentance literally describes a person completely changing their mind regarding their former ways, their their sin, and turning around in the complete opposite direction. This was the central teaching of Jesus and the disciples. And even before Jesus from John the Baptist, look for yourselves. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What about Jesus? Matthew 4.17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is Jesus literally beginning His ministry, and His his first word is repent. What what about His disciples? In Mark 6.12, the disciples have just been given their instructions from Jesus, and now they've gone out to spread the gospel. Mark's gospel says, They went out and preached that men should repent. After Christ ascended to heaven, two leaders kind of emerged for the Christian church. First it was Peter, and then Paul. Let's look at what Peter taught. Acts 2.38 says, This is Peter saying, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And finally, Paul, towards the end of the book of Acts, is on trial, and he's giving a a defense for himself. In Acts 26, 19, he says, I kept declaring both to those uh, throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And while we're on the subject of Paul, there's perhaps no better example of transformation than Paul in the New Testament. He was the number one persecutor and punisher of Christians. He hunted them down to torture and imprison and sometimes to have them executed. He was a Pharisee. He was one of the religious Jewish leaders. But Jesus literally intervened in his life, and he was permanently changed. In fact, his name was Saul, and he became a completely new person named Paul. And it was this Paul who would go on to write this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The same person, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 
4.22 through 24, it says this, Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So one thing is very clear so far. Part of loving others in the way that we should be loved and have been loved in Christ is to call others to repentance and change and transformation. But let's flesh this out a little bit more. Paul would go on to call Christians to further abandon the deeds of the flesh specific to their culture. Numerous times in numerous letters, he listed specific sins that they were personally dealing with, calling them to forsake these things as a matter of progressive sanctification and repentance. For example, the city of Corinth was a highly sexualized culture, as in they literally worshipped sex there. If you live in America, you don't have to imagine too much of what that's like. But look at what he said to those believers in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Okay, stop right there. The unrighteous will not be recipients of eternal salvation. They can't be united with Christ into His eternal kingdom, or, or you could say they will not inherit heaven. That's, that's kind of a big deal. In fact, it's the biggest deal. Now, let me ask everybody a question. If you love someone, and if you love your neighbor, if you love your spouse, if you love your kids, if you love your congregation, do you not desire more than anything that they inherit eternal life? right? We want everyone to find ultimate completion in Jesus. We want everyone we meet to experience not only temporal peace and love and joy on earth, but eternal, heavenly, godly peace and love and joy into eternity. So listen to me. The most loving thing you could ever want for someone is their transformation. Let me say it again. The most loving thing you could ever want for someone is their transformation, which Paul shows us is necessary for heavenly admittance. The problem is we're totally deceived about this. Paul goes on to list neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. This isn't an exhaustive list of sinful lifestyles, but they were what the Corinthians suffered from the most. He expressly states to those people, you can't worship the self or sex or having what others have or alcohol, etc., and think that you can even begin to please God and experience His eternal paradise. The good news for them, though, was what Paul said next. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. In other words, these people forsook their sins. They were cleansed, remember the, the foot washing, 
and they were ultimately sanctified and justified because of the work of Christ. And do you know why this happened? Do you know why this happened with the Corinthians? Because Paul loved them. Because Paul loved them. Godly love, which is to say the love of Jesus, is antithetical to acceptance of sin because sin is that which separates the individual from God. That means the Christian is to love by speaking the truth in love. Another quote from the Apostle Paul. That means identifying a person's need for repentance and they're realizing it because of the loving manner by which you've communicated it, as Jesus demonstrated numerous times. In fact, the only thing Christians are ever commanded to hate is evil. Proverbs 8.13, Amos 5.15, Psalm 97.10, and Romans 12.9 are just a few examples. So to respond to this commercial's tagline, Jesus didn't teach hate. The Word of Christ does, in fact, teach us to hate sin and evil, while it teaches us to love and have compassion upon those who are drowning in the muck and mire of their unrighteousness. But this is something he gets us completely abandons. Their website also says the following. He gets us as self-described as an initiative of a charity organization, according to their website, who has a common goal of sharing Jesus' story authentically. It's about Jesus, who created a love movement that is still inspiring many people thousands of years later. And in spite of our political differences, in spite of our ideological origins, in spite of all the things that could divide us, we have found a beautiful kinship in the inspiration we draw from the story of Jesus and the power of His life. Also on their website's About Us page, they say, He Gets Us is a movement to reintroduce people to the Jesus of the Bible and His confounding love and forgiveness. Be assured, though, that we're not left or right or a political organization of any kind. We're also not affiliated with any particular church or denomination. We simply want everyone to understand the authentic Jesus as He's depicted in the Bible the Jesus of radical forgiveness, compassion, and love. So as you can see so far, they have a completely incorrect and unbiblical view of love, which is devoid of transformation, change, and repentance. We are also about sharing Jesus' openness to people that others might have excluded. His message went out to all. And though you may see religious people as often hypocritical or judgmental, Know that Jesus saw that too and didn't like it either. Instead, Jesus taught and offered radical compassion and stood up for the marginalized. Yes, and he also called them to repentance. He gets us once to present the real Jesus while simultaneously apologizing to the world for the Christians that they've been unfortunate to know or have met. And I'll be the first to concede there are there are plenty of Christians that can be the most hateful people around. Now, you also have to concede that practically every group that has ever existed has had its share of rotten eggs. A prime example in recent history 
is the discussion around police force. The, the overwhelming majority of cops are fantastic public servants of law enforcement. But when a single officer makes a poor decision, it's plastered all over the news and the entirety of police everywhere are lumped into one category. They're all generalized to be what the rotten eggs were. And the same is true for just about every other classification of people. I've been around Christians my entire life. The overwhelming majority of them are fine people. So I'm not, I'm not going to treat every Christian like they're just like the terrible ones. But I don't even agree with giving that designation to people who don't truly follow Jesus. There are heaping piles of people who claim the title of Christian that act nothing like Jesus. Therefore, according to Scripture, a lot of the Scripture that we've just looked at, they're not a Christian in the first place. You know, calling myself a gentleman doesn't make me one. Being a gentleman does. All that to say, depicting so-called Christians as hateful is really an oxymoron because real Christians are not hateful. The connotation here is that Jesus has been falsely characterized by his supposed followers. He gets us, poses the question, how did the story of a man who taught and practiced unconditional love become associated with hatred and oppression for so many people? So do you see how they're framing all of this? They also state, the more ideologically defensive we become, the more we are willing to sacrifice things like kindness, patience, and the respect and dignity of others for the sake of victory. So I've got some news for you. Um, the, the real Christians, the ones who follow the real Jesus and study the commands of the real Bible, these are the real ones who oppose what is clearly evil and less than God's best. Just to run a short list, um, the real Christians oppose abortion because we oppose murder. It's very simple. Murder, the taking of innocent lives. We oppose sexual perversion and promiscuity because these destructive habits and relationships fall beyond God's intentions for a marriage. We oppose violence. We oppose racism, including reverse racism, which includes, you know, punishing a living generation because a, a prior generation got something wrong. We oppose tyranny and authoritarianism or totalitarianism because we believe in liberty. We believe in submitting to authority unless our civil authorities demand we disobey our ultimate authority. These things literally define our love, which is a direct love from God who absolutely despises sin yet intensely loves all people. So, I could go on and on and on about who the real ones are, but the real Christians are the one who are really like Christ. The problem is, liberals within and outside of the church want Jesus to be as attractive as possible. So they paint a picture of a false Jesus who's all about surface love and, and tolerance and acceptance when that Jesus could not be more of a sham. The commercial wants to make Jesus more culturally attractive, but the problem is 
What happens? Seriously, what happens when you've successfully lured these skeptics into the pages of Scripture? What happens when they encounter the, the really real Jesus? The Jesus that calls them to repentance and tells them to go and sin no more. All of this to say, he gets us, intends to help Christianity when these commercials end up being an attack on Christianity. There's a reason why true Christ followers reject this commercial and the whole campaign, as do liberals and non-Christians. And that's because he gets us as desperately trying to straddle a fence. The biblical terminology for that is that they're lukewarm. It's why the ad offended most who saw it, Christian and non-Christian alike. Look, I'll prove it to you. CNN asked Jason Vanderground, who is the representative for He Gets Us, if the campaign supports and affirms LGBTQ plus Christians. Here's what they said. Look at this non-answer. The debate over LGBTQ plus issues is a great example of how the real Jesus too often gets lost, overlooked, or distorted in debates over political and social issues. Our focus is on helping people see and consider Jesus as He is shown in the Bible. He gets us and He loves us, and that includes people on all sides of these issues. So, no answer. But look, here's how the, the two sides perceive this lukewarm answer. Christians know that Jesus loves LGBTQ plus people, but that He would call them to forsake their sexual perversity and follow Him. On the other liberal side, they even know that Christians are opposed to LGBTQ plus issues, but more specifically, they know that the organization itself has ties to anti-LGBTQ plus legislation. While donors who support He Gets Us can choose to remain anonymous, Hobby Lobby co-founder David Green claims to be a big contributor to the campaign's multi-million dollar coffers. Hobby Lobby has famously been at the center of, the, of several legal controversies, including the support of an anti-LGBTQ plus legislation and a successful years-long legal fight that, that eventually led to the Supreme Court allowing companies to deny medical coverage for contraception on the basis of religious beliefs. In other words, both Christians and non-Christians alike can see that there's a vast hypocrisy at work here. And that's because he gets us once to sit on the proverbial fence. But that's not the only disparity liberals have noticed. Here's what a liberal pastor said about this. Young people are digital natives who understand the difference between slick marketing and authenticity. Mega churches, mega events, and mega spending on marketing is seen as money that could have been used funding community programs and advocacy for the oppressed, such as refugees, LGBTQ plus individuals, and abortion rights, and the poor. Jesus doesn't have an image problem, but Christians and their churches do. These campaigns end up being PR for the wrong problems. Young people are savvy. One of their primary issues with evangelicalism and the modern church in America is the amount of money spent on itself. While I completely disagree with Dr. Young's theology, quite frankly, I agree with some of his sentiments here. They've spent millions upon millions of dollars to represent a false Jesus, a woke Jesus, and have painted Christians as a bunch of hateful bigots who need to wash some feet. 
Vox responded to the ad as well, saying, While the clear goal of the ad is to bring people together across different life experiences and backgrounds, the result is a disjointed, chaotic dartboard effect that raises far more questions than it provides answers. Despite the campaign's ostensible goal of bridging gaps across a range of identities and experiences, each image instead reasserts an uncomfortable us-and-them dynamic between the foot washer and the washee. Now this is quite an astute observation, and, and Vox, which is quite the liberal outlet, is actually on the precipice of learning something quite critical. The us and them, or us or them dynamic that they observe in the ad is liberal doctrine, which has been passed down through the wretched generations from the father of communism, a certain Karl Marx himself. Almost every single frame of the ad splits people into two camps, which is how Marx viewed the world. Oppressed versus oppressor, or to use Marx's language, proletariat versus bourgeoisie. Marx's philosophy was a revolution, or class warfare, to overthrow the ruling class, the oppressors, to create an utopian society. The oppressors in America are white Christians. The footwashers, in almost every single frame, everyone else, people of color and diverse sexual perversions, are those oppressed by the evil white Christians. Therefore, we must bow down and wash the feet in order for there to be a true Marxist revolution. But Vox misses that point, and instead they observed, We're supposed to read this as a straightforward message of opposites uniting despite their differences, but because there's a uniformity in the depiction of who is doing the act versus who gets their feet washed, the overall impression is one of performativity rather than sincerity. The subtext of the images and foot washing suggests a performative rather than substantive embrace of who we hate. All this to say, he gets us did far more harm than good, all with help of charitable dollars from private donors and the CEO of Hobby Lobby, in case you still shop there. Now, there's one detail I said I'd come back to, and that is that in every single frame, both people have their shoes off. Um, not just the one having their feet washed. And, and this is one of, I think, one of the many ways, one of the main ways that they failed, but it's because of their misunderstanding of the really real Jesus and his love. They should have shown the marginalized washing an evil white person's feet. They should have been, there should have been depictions of a, a trans person washing the feet of a Christian an abortionist washing the feet of a pro-life activist. You know, maybe half the video the other way around, but they didn't do that. They only subtly hinted at it by having both parties shoeless. And this hidden detail would be the beginning of actual societal change. If everyone humbly served and listened to each other, there would be the start of something new. Then and only then would you all begin to understand what real love actually is. Then and only then would Christians who stink at communicating the transformative love of Christ begin to love his neighbor as himself. In fact, someone named Jamie Bambrick remade the Super Bowl commercial 
to encapsulate all of this as a response to this disparity. Watch. Don't ask me what you know is true. Don't have to tell you. These are real stories of real people who were loved by real Christians and found the transformative love of the real Jesus. Former witch, former atheist, former jihadist, former racist, drug addict, gang leader, drag queen, prostitute, abortionist, transgender, porn star, new age guru, and lesbian activist. This is why Paul said, and such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The remake of the ad concludes by saying, Jesus doesn't just get us. He saves us, transforms us, cleanses us, restores us, forgives us, heals us, delivers us, redeems us, and loves us. Well, what did you think of the ad? Let me know in the comments. Well, that's going to do it for me. What'll it be next time? We'll see. For now, go and be the salt and light you were meant to be, and we'll see you next time on We The Free. We The Free is written and produced by Blake Watson in East Tennessee. Special thanks to The Freebies, our supporters, for your feedback, prayers, and financial support. For inquiries, contact Blake at wethefreeshow.com. Read more about We The Free at wethefreeshow.com and check out our merch store there. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and watch all of the content you've just heard today on video.